1: The success of the Make America Great Again slogan has just been put into numbers. A new Pew Research Center study out this week found that 41% of Americans feel life in the U.S. is now worse than it was 50 years ago, while only 37% feel it's better. But the global survey also assessed the mood in other countries, and it brings me to my question. Which nation most strongly believes life to be better in their country today than it was 50 years ago? Vietnam? Vietnam? Turkey, Germany, or India. Stay tuned and... This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Farid Zakaria. Today on the show, President Trump breaks decades of tradition on Jerusalem.
2: It is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel.
1: Those words upset America's allies and enemies alike. One ally was, of course, pleased.
3: President Trump, thank you for today's historic decision.
1: But will it put peace even further out of reach? I have a great panel to debate. Also, it was the United Nations that laid out the plan for Jerusalem in 1947. I have an exclusive interview with the Secretary-General to get his reaction and to talk about his broader relations with President Trump and also what can possibly be done about North Korea.
0: Hope is the last thing we can afford to lose.
1: But first, here's my take. With his decision to move the American embassy to Jerusalem, President Trump did something puzzling for a person who claims to be a great deal maker. He made a massive, preemptive concession to one side in a complicated negotiation without getting anything for it in return. If that's how he operates, it's no wonder so many of his former colleagues think he isn't actually a very successful businessman after all. Jerusalem is Israel's capital and will remain so. I don't dispute the fact or its merits. But the reason that all 86 countries that have embassies in Israel have so far located them in Tel Aviv is that Jerusalem is an integral part of the final settlement between Israelis and Palestinians. The Palestinians claim the city as their capital as well. It contains sites sacred to all three of the world's Abrahamic faiths. It has within it a large Arab population that even after decades of new Israeli settlements comprises more than a third of the city's total. So the formal status of Jerusalem has always been seen by Republicans and Democrats, Europeans and Asians, as a matter to be codified in the context of peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Far from being part of a larger strategic plan, Trump's announcement appears to be a one-off decision designed largely to delight core elements of Trump's base at home, evangelical Christians and pro-Israeli donors. The only strategic aspect appears to be that it will help shore up the GOP base on the eve of Roy Moore's senatorial contest in Alabama. That is not diplomacy. That's pandering. There are ways to solve the Jerusalem problem, such as by carving out some neighborhoods in the eastern part of the city and allowing the Palestinians to claim those as their capital. Trump's announcement actually did not specifically foreclose this possibility, which makes the move even more puzzling. It actually achieves little on the ground, all the while offending millions of Palestinians, hundreds of millions of Arabs, and public opinion almost everywhere. When China, your European allies, the Pope, the kings of Saudi Arabia and Jordan all voice strong opposition, it is surely worth questioning the wisdom of the policy. While many people have predicted violence in the Middle East, it's likely that this will be contained. Israel is now the regional superpower, and its neighbors know it. It also has tight control over the Palestinian territories with a network of barriers, checkpoints, and intelligence operations. Terrorism for most Israelis is a problem that has simply gone away. The real danger is that this decision only adds to the mounting despair of Palestinians, who are already weak, divided, and dysfunctional. They've never had good leadership. They barely have any leadership now. They live in an unusual, almost unique condition in the modern world. Citizens of no state without a country of their own. Meanwhile, Israel will continue to prosper economically and maintain its genuinely democratic character, but with this one large caveat, it will rule over lands with millions of people who lack full political rights. That cancer at the heart of Israel's democratic system and culture will remain and might intensify as Israeli Arabs grow in number. There will be an Israel that looks like Switzerland, surrounded by a Palestine that looks like Bangladesh. It's possible that at some point, this inequality of income, status, and political rights will lead to some kind of explosion. It will certainly lead to greater polarization and discord. And America's action this week will have deepened these fissures and exacerbated those tensions. For more, go to CNN.com slash and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let me bring on others to continue this conversation on the president's controversial moves on Jerusalem. Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of A World in Disarray. Hanan Ashrawi is a Palestinian lawmaker, a member of the executive committee of the PLO, and a former negotiator and spokesperson for the Palestinians. She joins us from Ramallah. And Dori Gold was Israel's ambassador to the UN, amongst many other diplomatic posts. He is president of the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs and joins us from Los Angeles. Uh, Hanan Ashrawi, let me start with you. Um, What do you think uh, the effect of this decision will be? Does it not simply ratify reality?
4: Not at all. On the contrary, it undermines the chances of peace. It totally destroys American credibility, standing influence. And of course, it disqualifies it from taking any role in peacemaking in the future, It also sends a message to the whole world that you can impose facts unilaterally outside the law and you will get away with it. But if you commit to a negotiated settlement based on legality and justice and international law, then you get no cooperation. This has moved the U.S. from being a so-called peace broker, and we knew from the beginning it was never even handed, to uh, becoming complicit with Israel in its crime. Israel has annexed East Jerusalem illegally in 1967. And, of course, it has uh, placed uh, West Jerusalem under its sovereignty in 1948, even though its legal status remains uh, as a corpus separatum. So now we have a uh, so-called peace broker that has taken sides blatantly and that has, in many ways, rewarded impunity and has sold out the Palestinian people, as well as the chances of peace, and has succeeded in one fell swoop to to undermine the security and stability of the whole region.
1: Dory Gold, isn't it fair uh, to say that while this might provide some emotional satisfaction for uh, Israelis, that it it ratifies this sense of Jerusalem as their capital, which it is uh, de facto, um, it does complicate at the very least, perhaps threaten the, the, nego- the peace process, any u- ultimate deal with the Palestinians. And it feels like, you know, in return for that little emotional frisson, free- you're giving up a
3: lot. Well, I, I view it quite the opposite. I think in order for negotiations to succeed, and I've been involved in a series of nego- negotiations from the days of the Hebron Accord to the Y Agreement and onward, um, there has to be, you have to get the parties into what I call the box of realism. And unfortunately, those who've been engaged in peace negotiations on the Palestinian side haven't been there. Partly it's not their fault. Partly it's the fault of the international community, which has organizations like UNESCO, which in May 2017 adopted yet another resolution which disqualified Israel, cut off the historical and legal ties of Israel to Jerusalem. And in a certain sense, what President Trump has done, he's introduced an important correction, I may say a brave correction, in that whole history of UNESCO resolutions that aren't based on uh, international law, they're not based on truth, they're based on political power being exercised against the state of Israel.
1: Richard Haas, can you split the difference on this? Can you be Solomon?
2: No, in some ways this conversation raises the, the issue of why would you want to put Jerusalem out there naked, alone, at the beginning, as the engine, if you will, rather than the caboose. The sense was it was always going to be the most difficult issue to contend with as part of a final status. Yes, it does recognize one side of reality or or reality. On the other hand, why would you do it so in an isolated way? If you are going to introduce Jerusalem, give something to the Israelis, why not ask something from the Israelis on settlements or something else? Why not give something or ask something both from the Palestinians? So my my problem with this is just to, to trot out one thing now, the most combustible, volatile, emotional of issues in isolation from the rest of diplomacy. I just don't understand what's the, what's the potential upside, but I do see, Fareed, an awful lot of potential downside.
1: All right, hold that thought. We're gonna come back to talk with this terrific panel about something uh, that is perhaps even bigger than the Israeli-Palestinian struggle and is now surpassing it, the Cold War between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Is that now the key driver in the Middle East? When we come back. And we are back with Richard Haas, Hanan Ashrawi, and Dory Gold. Uh, Hanan Ashrawi, is it fair to say that the the Palestinian cause has never been uh, particularly strongly championed by the Arabs other than as a rhetorical matter, and now is even less uh, uh, central to the, the views of Arabs? If you look at Saudi Arabia today, it seems to be in a tacit alliance with Israel because it is obsessed with Iran the Palestinian issue has been thrown to the wayside completely. So are you now really on the losing side of this new, this next great power game in the Middle East?
4: Uh, Certainly. The Palestinian question now is in an extremely difficult position, given the realities of the region, given the bloody transition we are undergoing uh, throughout the Arab world, given the fact that we have proxy wars in countries like uh, Syria and and Libya, and even since the war on Iraq, and and now the war on Yemen, and so on. And since there is a new polarization, attempting to create a sort of sunni shiite divide at the expense of the stability and unity of the whole region, of course, all these have sidelined the Palestinian question, and deprived deprived us of much support that we really need. So I think that uh, given also the fact that Israel's impunity has continued without any intervention, without any question, without any accountability, and, ge- and destroying the two-state solution, by the way, and given the fact that U.S. Uh, cover for Israel has come out into uh, outright collusion and has destroyed the charade of a peace process, so now we find that the Palestinians have to sort of turn inwards and look towards themselves on the one hand to strengthen their ability to remain on the land and to withstand all these pressures and changes, and on the other hand, to reach out to the international community for sources of protection and accountability for Israel. So I would say, yes, these changes are extremely drastic, and I think the whole region is on the verge of serious transformations that are not necessarily
1: positive. Dori Gold, one of the points that Hanan Shrabi made in a New York Times op-ed and that Saeb Arakat, the chief Palestinian negotiator for many years, also made is that perhaps the Palestinians will now move away from a two-state solution uh, to a one-state solution to say, all right, if there are these millions of Palestinians who are being denied full political rights, the right to have their own country, perhaps what we need then, they would the, the Palestinians would say, is simply voting rights within Israel. We have to be citizens of some country, and we will, take, we will we ask them that we be given citizenship in Israel. Isn't that a real danger here? If the two-state solution evaporates, that you will end up with a one-state solution with a majority Palestinian or Arab population?
3: Well, let me address what the real danger is in the Middle East. You hinted at it before, but just to answer your specific question... Um, is, I was the director general of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Israel, and we had a very clear diplomatic doctrine. Our doctrine was, first, we seek to negotiate with our Palestinian neighbors. Second of all, we're prepared to reach a generous compromise with our Palestinian neighbors. And third, we seek that any structure of a solution be based on, a, on cooperation between our two societies, between our two political entities. And that's what we've been pushing And unfortunately, we've gotten a flat no on all three of these fundamentals of our diplomatic doctrine. Now, making it all the more complex is something you alluded to. The main diplomatic actor affecting the future of the Middle East is a man by the name of General Qasem Soleimani, who is the commander of the Quds forces of the Revolutionary Guards. And today, Iranian forces have boots on the ground in Lebanon, in Syria, in Yemen, And, of course, in Iraq. And that is really what's changed the nature of the Middle East. And if there is a consensus among all of us, all of us who support stability and support progress, it is that this Iranian role must be discontinued. And um, we hope that in our diplomacy and in our connections, whether above the table or below the table, we can put the Middle East on a better footing to oppose Iranian expansionism which is now seeking to build a land bridge from Iraq all the way to the Mediterranean and a military presence uh, in the areas in between.
1: Richard, could you imagine um, a one-state solution with Palestinians demanding, almost in a kind of uh, Gandhi-esque, Martin Luther King way, kind of civil disobedience that just says, look, you have to give us some kind of of rights.
2: We live on this land. You control it. Um, You know, we can't be forever stateless. I can imagine people pushing for it, but I don't think it can be a solution. Israel can't be a secure, prosperous, Jewish democratic state. And to have things move in, in that direction, something's got to give. But there's an irony to this, this whole converse, conversation. People like me have sat on your show, Fried, and criticized this administration for a lack of diplomacy towards North Korea or what they're doing to the State Department. So here you finally have a diplomatic initiative, but it's the wrong one. And it's actually, among other things, going to make it much more difficult for the United States to work with the Saudis and others against the Iranian imperial push. So we finally get some diplomacy. That's the good news. The bad news is it's a counterproductive example of it.
1: Because um, the Saudis, the Jordanians all say, look. To the, to the Trump administration. They're saying this publicly, you've just complicated our lives because it's hard for us to
2: ally with you while you're being so you know, seemingly one-sided on this. Issue. All these regimes sit uneasily on top of their populations. This is an issue that has pote- potentially real popular uh, interest and emotion. And the Saudis in particular, who are so interested in consolidating power, this is just the sort of thing that might make it more difficult for them to be seen by their own people to be cozying up to the United States. This and spending $500, billion on a pay, $500 million on a painting and $500 million on a yacht all in, in a few months. All in the name of an uh, anti-corruption campaign, yes. It's hard to square that circle. Uh,
1: Hanan Ashrawi, uh, Dory Gold, Richard Haas, thank you very much. Fascinating conversation. Next on GPS, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett have as much wealth as the poorest half of the United States population. So where does inequality come from historically? I'll give you a hint. It seems to have started with big, strong horses and cattle. I will explain when we come back. Now for our What in the World segment. We told you on this show a few weeks ago how just three Americans, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Jeff Bezos, have more wealth than the entire bottom half of the United States population. By some calculations, the U.S. has the highest level of economic inequality in the entire developed world. And the tax bill that is working its way through Congress is probably only going to make things worse. It will further enrich families like, well, Donald Trump's. Now a new study published in the journal Nature gives us some big historical perspective going way back. A team of researchers, led by the archaeologist Timothy Kohler at Washington State University, examined ancient or prehistoric societies using a very modern tool. It's a scale you might have heard of called the Gini coefficient. Developed by an Italian statistician in the early 1900s, the Gini measures inequality on a scale of zero to one. In a group of people who all have the same amount of wealth, you would have a Gini score of zero. In a group in which one individual has all the wealth and all the others have nothing, you would have a Gini score of one, so zero to one. The German Bank Allianz has one of the most quoted Gini scales out there. It ranks the United States as the most unequal nation with a score of 0.81. Germany is lower with 0.73. Russia is at 0.69. The most equal countries on the scale are South Korea with a 0.54, China with a 0.53, and Slovakia with a 0.48. All of them, of course, far from totally equal, which would be zero. So Kohler and his team took the Gini coefficient and applied it to archaeological data from 63 societies, some dating back 11,000 years to the beginning of the New Stone Age, when societies started to settle down, build permanent structures and plant crops. Kohler had few records to draw on from this period, and some of the archaeological sites were better preserved than others, but what they did all have, and what Kohler's team decided to physically measure, were the remains of houses. Big ones for richer people, smaller ones for their poorer neighbors. And what their research suggests is fascinating. Before the advent of agriculture, which is relatively recent in the long perspective of human history, it began around 9,000 B.C., there was very little inequality. Hunter-gatherer societies had low median Gini scores, 0.17. Then came the domestication of animals, especially the large ones native to Europe and Asia that did all the heavy farming work. So if you had oxen or horses to help you till your fields, you were a much more efficient farmer. Thus, you could sell more crops at the market and get richer. With that extra wealth, you would buy more horses or oxen and plow more fields and get even richer. And then you could leave it all to your children. Meanwhile, the farmers who could not afford animals were just left behind. Thus began human inequality, and it often perpetuated itself. Now, modern societies found ways to break the cycle through capitalism and meritocracy, which allow bright and successful people of no means to rise up. But this new elite has, in many countries, found ways of perpetuating itself by stacking the deck in its favor, as the tax bill does. The greatest inequality the team found was a 0.68 in Cahoon, an ancient Egyptian settlement. It's bad, of course, but not as bad as the Gini score of the current-day United States. Kohler, who studied the rise and fall of societies across millennia, has some words of warning for us. If we become too unequal, violence and state collapse could follow. Next on GPS, my exclusive interview with the Secretary General of the United Nations on Jerusalem, North Korea and his relations with President Trump. It was almost exactly 70 years ago that the United Nations passed Resolution 181 that calls for the city of Jerusalem to be a corpus separatum, a separate entity under international control. After fighting the following year, 1948, Jordan took control of the city's east while Israel got the western part. In 1967, Israel wrested control of the entire city. Two years following that original 1947 resolution, Antonio Manuel de Oliveira Guterres was born in Lisbon, Portugal. A lifelong activist, politician and diplomat, Guterres now serves as the Secretary General of the United Nations. On Wednesday, after the President's announcement, Guterres said we were in a moment of great anxiety. I sat down with him later in the week in the chambers of the U.N. Security Council. Mr. Secretary-General, pleasure to have you on. It's a normal pleasure to be here with you. Um, what, what do you think is the danger of President Trump's uh, recognition of Jerusalem? You, you spoke out with, with some concern about it. Well, you know, I was quite
0: hopeful in relation to the efforts that President Trump uh, was making uh, with his team. Uh, to try to bring Israelis and Palestinians to accept a solution. I mean, until now, in the past, we had several times a peace process. But the fact is that peace processes went on and on and on, and at a certain moment they would break, and then things would get worse than what they were. And I think President Trump had the intuition that probably the best would be to try to negotiate a full package. Uh, And I know that uh, Kushner and others were very strongly involved in dialogue with the Palestinians and Israelis, and there was some hope that it would be possible. I'm not saying it it will happen, but there was a hope that it would be possible to finally bring this horrible conflict between Israelis and Palestinians to an end. I think that the decision that was taken Wednesday risks to compromise this effort. And if that is the case, it would be uh, uh, a pity because it would be so important to find a solution to this crisis. In my opinion, it must be a two-state solution, but it is so important to find a solution for this crisis.
1: You said um, that you were you were hopeful and even uh, impressed by some of the things President Trump was saying to you. I, I, I imagine, on the Israeli-Palestinian side, um, on many other issues, he has seemed to take a very uh, negative view of international institutions, multilateralism. Uh, global agreements, he's pulled out of the Paris Accords, he's, uh, you know, de- defunding or pulling out of uh, U.S. funding of UNESCO. Do you think this is the United States turning its back on institutions like the U.N. that it created after World War II?
0: Well, uh, I think that there is a vision uh, that is expressed in the uh, sentence, uh, uh, America first. The vision that uh, the interests of the American people are best protected uh, by the US in itself, and that international organizations do not contribute much to it, uh, and that the engagement of the United States uh, in many of the global issues of today uh, are thus relevant uh, for the interests of the American people. I believe it's not uh, uh, true. Uh, The US is too big and too relevant to be able to think it alone. Uh, uh, the the way things happen in the world has a very important impact in the way things happen in the United States. And so in my belief, it is very important for the world and it's very important for the United States that U.S. engages. Engages in climate action, engages in migration, but also engages in addressing crises like the crisis inside in Syria, or Iraq, or Afghanistan, or South Sudan, or the DRC, where the role of the U.S. can be extremely important to allow for solutions to be found, to have leverage, to have uh, pressure. Uh, on the actors to these conflicts in order to be able to make them understand that uh, it's necessary to stop those conflicts. And in the end, uh, 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 what is clear is that wherever the U.S. doesn't occupy the space, someone else will do. And this, in the end, will be, in my opinion, detrimental to American interests. And also, uh, the lack of capacity to have a stabilizing influence in the world, uh, in the multiplicity of crises we have, where conflicts are so much interlinked and linked to problems of global terrorism, I think that to disengage in world affairs also impacts negatively on the security of any people, including the American people.
1: As you say, when the United States uh, steps back, others step forward, uh, and naturally their interests and values might be different. Uh, I feel as though you're already seeing this uh, with the rise of China, with China saying that it's more than happy to play a larger role. Uh, of course, you have a, a certain amount of ha- happening with Russia. Is that dynamic already um, accelerating?
0: I think that dynamic is evident. First, we are no longer in a, a unipolar world or a bipolar world of the Cold War. We are, But we are not yet in a multipolar world. You know, we, we are in a kind of a chaotic world where... Different countries are trying to assert themselves in different ways, Uh, and not only the the big powers like China or Russia. You see the influence of countries like Iran or Saudi Arabia or Turkey. So so, uh, this is a a world that became difficult to predict, Mm -hmm. where unpredictability and impunity are the new rules of the game. Mm -hmm. And that is why American influence is so important, as a stabilizing factor. Now, the truth is that uh, for a country like China that has a very clear long-term strategy, uh, I believe China considers that they have chances to become the largest economic power in the world in the near future, uh, it is clear that wherever the United States leaves some space, China will occupy it from the development point of view. Uh, If one looks at uh, geostrategic considerations in the Middle East, for instance, it's clear wherever the U.S. withdraws, Russia uh, or Iran or Saudi Arabia uh, will consider there is an opportunity for them. So it is obvious for me that from the point of view of the international community as a whole, The fact that the United States does not engage in a situation is not positive, uh, makes things less predictable, and from the point of view of the United States, I think it also represents a threat in the long term, because we live in a world where uh, the dangers are real for all of us. I mean, for decades we had no concerns with the nuclear danger. Uh, with the North Korea crisis and now with the questions about the future of the relationship between the U.S. and Iran in relation to the nuclear uh, question, uh, I think that there is a risk that non-proliferation enters in a a difficult moment uh, in the near future. So there is, again, and we forgot about it since the Cold War, a nuclear threat. If you look at the global Middle East, now it's not only the Syria crisis or the Iraq crisis. Everything is now interlinked. Uh, uh, You have the memory of the Cold War still, the uh, U.S.-Russia relationship, but you have the... Israeli-Palestinian question, but you have the Shia Sunni and all these contradictions are now uh, piling up, uh, interacting with each other, and making the whole Middle East becoming a very dangerous area for the world, in my opinion, because also linked to problems of global terrorism. Uh, And then we have climate change, which is probably the defining threat of our times. And I believe that when the world is is facing these kind of threats, it's very important to come together. It's very important the role of multilateral organizations and it's very important that a country like the United States plays a constructive and engaged role.
1: Next on GPS, I'll be back with much more of my interview with Secretary-General Guterres. We'll talk about what to do about the world's thorniest problem, North Korea. When the United Nations Secretary General Guterres and I sat down together in the Security Council Chamber, our backdrop was a stunning mural by the Norwegian artist Per Krogh. The phoenix at the center of the artwork is said to represent the world rising from the ashes of war toward an era of peace. It was a fitting place perhaps to talk about the drums of war that are starting to sound between North Korea and the United States. The general feeling is that North Korea, the situation is at an impasse. There is no good military option. The North Koreans seem determined to acquire a large and robust nuclear capacity. Uh, They already have it uh, in many senses. And the only country that could do something about it is China, which will not cut off the fuel supplies because they worry about a collapse. If that's the reality... Is there a solution, or is the world going to have to live with um, a nuclear North Korea that might have an arsenal in a few years larger than that of uh, Great Britain? Well,
0: I have my political director in Pyongyang at the present moment, so I think hope is the last thing we can afford to lose. Um, uh, There is a very important factor here, the unity of the Security Council. Of course, uh, that has not yet solved the problem, but it is clear that there is now a very large pressure over North Korea. And I think the North Koreans are feeling it. If that unity is maintained, and I strongly hope that it is maintained, I think it also paves the way for a diplomatic initiative to be possible. Uh, I don't think China controls North Korea. Uh, I think North Korea became an entity in itself. Uh, But I think that uh, for the North Koreans, uh, there is also a question of survival that is very important. Um, And my belief is that uh, if the unity of the Secret Council is maintained, uh, I think North Korea can be forced to come to a meaningful dialogue, namely with the United States. Uh, That is probably the only power they fear. Um, uh, and uh, uh, paved the way for the effective denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And I think we should do everything we can to reach that objective. And I believe that a diplomatic solution is the way to achieve it without a level of danger that, uh, again, would would be unpredictable in its consequences if a military option would,
1: would be taken. Um, you were the High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, and we look at the situation for refugees around the world which is really the worst it's ever been since world war II. Um, the trump administration's new travel ban has just been okayed by the supreme court Um, what do you say uh, to the american administration which appears the united states already takes very few refugees and appears now to be closing its doors even to that small number
0: what i say to the american administration or to europe or to countries in the north in general, is that it is essential to re-establish the integrity of the refugee protection regime. That is based in international law, and it's essential to understand that refugees are not terrorists. They are the first victims of terror. They are those that flee because of the action of terrorists. And that, uh, uh, when one looks at countries like Jordan or Lebanon that have received millions of refugees with enormous generosity, or uh, Kenya and Uganda, uh, uh, I think it's very important that the developed world shows that we are ready in the developed world to have our share, to receive also a meaningful number of refugees. Of course, there are security concerns. And there are ways, fortunately, uh, uh, in relation to registration, to screening, today to be able to detect uh, those situations in which uh, uh, there could be a security risk. And I have to say that my experience is that those that really have terrorist intents, they they look for other ways to move because the, the, the refugee movement is so scrutinized that it really is not the best opportunity from that point of view. But there are ways to, to do effective screening, and to guarantee the security, namely of resettlement program. So my appeal uh, to the global north, to the developed world, is be more generous to refugees, be more able to share the huge uh, contribution that countries in the south, like the ones I mentioned, are giving, and that will be, in my opinion, a very important factor to uh, increase peace and stability in the
1: world. You mentioned that you felt the world was getting more chaotic, not not so much multipolar. Um, do you worry that this chaos is getting to the point where it's turning into anarchy?
0: Let's hope not. I think the role of the United Nations is exactly to avoid it. The Security Council, we are sitting in the room of the Security Council, as as its mission, its primary mission, to preserve peace and security in the world. We have seen that the divisions in the Security Council have made it difficult. It's our role to do everything possible to avoid this uh, rather uh, uh, unstructured situation of global power not to lead to the kind of uh, chaos uh, that would make the terrible dangers we are already facing to become much worse. I think it's time for people to understand that what divides, what divides the countries around this table is much less than the vital interest to preserve global security and the vital interest to address challenges like climate change.
1: Mr. Secretary-General, pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you very much. Next on GPS, the state of terror around the world. Are terror attacks and deaths in decline, or do we have an upswing? We can tell you what the trends look like when we come back. The success of the Make America Great Again slogan has just been put into numbers. A new Pew Research Center study out this week found that 41% of Americans feel life in the U.S. is now worse than it was 50 years ago, while only 37% feel it's better. But the global survey also assessed the mood in other countries, and it brings me to my question. Which nation most strongly believes life to be better in their country today than it was 50 years ago? Vietnam, Turkey, Germany, or India? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. This week's Book of the Week is David Miliband's Rescue. This is a powerful book, part memoir, part urgent plea that we take a more serious and compassionate look at the plight of refugees around the world. It's holiday season, so read this book and please let it move you to some action. And now for the last look. More than 300 people were recently murdered in a heinous attack at an Egyptian mosque. When the president retweeted questionable anti-Muslim videos posted by a far-right ultra-nationalist group, his press secretary justified the tweets by saying,
2: Whether it's it's a real video, the threat is real.
1: Of course it is. But this year's news is that it is actually diminishing. Let's look at the numbers. Overall, the world saw a 13% decline in the number of terror-related deaths last year, according to the most recent Global Terrorism Index. The largest improvement occurred in Nigeria, where deaths attributed to Boko Haram decreased by an astonishing 80 percent. In fact, four of the five countries most heavily impacted by terror—Afghanistan, Nigeria, Syria, and Pakistan—recorded a reduction in the number of terror deaths in 2016. Those countries, however, along with Iraq, did still account for three-quarters of all terrorism deaths. ISIS was particularly active in Iraq, and globally, deaths attributed to the group increased by 49%. The report does note another increase. The number of countries that experienced a terror death increased from 2015 to 2016. Overall, 25,673 people were killed in terrorist attacks around the entire world last year. Each of those deaths is a tragedy, but the numbers should be kept in perspective. After all, CDC data shows that more than 38,000 people in America alone died from gun-related injuries last year. The answer to my GPS Challenge question this week is A. 88% of Vietnamese polled found life in their country to be better than it was 50 years ago, with only 4% saying they thought life was now worse. Vietnam's booming economy can take part of the credit for the positive consensus in the country, but bear in mind that 2017 minus 50 equals 1967. That year, the U.S. military stepped up its efforts to crush the Viet Cong, escalating the violence of the Vietnam War. On the other end of the study spectrum, Venezuelans were the most pessimistic, with only 10% saying they thought life in their country today was better. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week.
3: Now, streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.